0: I was born in the state of Illinois. My father was a flight instructor, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. We had a basement, as did most people in the Midwest, and like so many others, it was converted into a guest room. We had wood-paneled walls and a bar, and my parents would throw parties for neighbors and friends. During the 1960s, this was the thing to do. A party was being thrown when I was 8 years old, and the basement was packed with people, booze, and smoke. There was no ventilation, and everyone smoked. As a result, the smoke sat like a cloud. This bothered no one because smoking was prevalent at the time. If you're younger, I understand how you might be surprised that such a crowded room with everyone smoking could exist. But trust me, this was the norm back then. Basement parties were common in the Midwest, and my parents were no exception. In fact, if you had a basement, it was expected that you would have a bar, fully stocked, and all the amenities needed for a get-together. If you couldn't have a basement that met those requirements, you should be ashamed. During tornado season, the basement served as a safe haven. A twister leveled half of our block in 1967. We were unharmed, but some of our neighbors' houses were destroyed. Back to the festivities. On one occasion, my six-year-old brother and I, age eight, decided to sneak into the basement unnoticed to watch the adults party. There were half-empty bottles of beer and drinks everywhere. That's when Jimmy and I decided to take a risk and get a couple of half-beers. We were curious about what seemed to make our normal family and friends so happy and chatty. A six- or eight-year-old could have had one of two reactions. I sipped the beer and spit it out, disgusted that it wasn't soda. Alternatively, sipping the beer and enjoying it. It was the latter for my brother and me. It was fantastic. Furthermore, we got a buzz quickly and fled to our bedrooms before we were discovered. We didn't leave without grabbing two more half-bottles of beer. I was an alcoholic from that point forward. We'd beg our father for a swig of his beer, and he'd always say, Okay, but this is the last time. I honestly can't recall the last time. That same year, we relocated to Long Island. My father changed jobs. Third grade began for me. As the new kid, I found myself doing outrageous things in order to be accepted. I was an A student and a bit of a nerd up until that point. This quickly changed. At least in my mind, and it definitely affected my grades. Let us fast forward a few years. My parents were divorced, I was twelve, and my friends and I were begging for change at the mall every night to buy beer. My father was a slacker and a full-fledged alcoholic. My mother, married at the age of seventeen, had three boys, and struggled to keep my younger brother and me under control. We took full advantage of my mother's disadvantages, and I'm still sorry for the pain I caused her. She was simply looking for work to help us pay our rent. We relocated from a lovely subdivision of homes to a one-bedroom apartment in order to remain in the same school district. The issue for my brothers and me was that the school district was home to some of Long Island's most affluent families. At the age of 16, kids were getting brand-new cars to drive to school while we were still wearing year-old sneakers. This marked a watershed moment in my life and thought process. At 16, I was doing acid, smoking marijuana, and drinking every night. I was also filled with rage and fought every time a fight came my way. I used to pick fights all the time. I was good at it after taking boxing lessons and felt great satisfaction when I knocked people out cold. I was fortunate not to have killed anyone. I was an angry young man and my drinking was getting worse. I quickly realized that I needed more money to support my drug and alcohol addiction. I banded together with four other friends and began burglarizing houses. We then learned how to disable alarm systems in TV warehouses and became very successful commercial burglars. I was only 16 years old when I moved out on my own and dropped out of school. I had discovered a way to have more money than the rich kids and to satisfy my thirst for alcohol. I could either take or leave the drugs. On a daily basis, the alcohol was what kept me going. Everything came crashing down in July of 1975. One of my gang members turned rat, and the others also testified. I took a beating at the precinct all night and didn't say anything. My partners were given probation. I was given six years and worked for two years and more. I spent a lot of time in the hole during this time. My rage was so intense that if someone sneezed near me, I would fight. I liked being feared in prison. When I was released, I had not been rehabilitated. On the contrary, I believed that only the strong survived and my rage became lethal to anyone who came into contact with me and was not respectful. At the same time, I was devoted to my friends and would give my life for them. I wasn't living, I was simply existing. My parole was violated only six months after I was released because I was a suspect in a warehouse burglary. They didn't need proof because I was on parole. Just suspicion. I was in prison for a year before being released just before my 21st birthday. I went back to my first love, alcohol. And this time, I had no parole and nothing to stop me from fleeing the cops who were tailing me. One in particular informed all of my associates that he was a member of the Organized Crime Task Force and that he would do everything in his power to have me imprisoned for good. I was dating a California girl at the time. My reputation on Long Island was ruined because I was renting a room. Nobody would hire me even if I wanted to go straight. When I fell for the sixth time in six years... I was on the front page of our local newspaper. Parents forbid their children from hanging out with me. I was friends with one girl, and her mother knew me by a different name because she didn't want her daughter to be around me. When she discovered who I was, she became one of my most ardent supporters. She died, and I miss her terribly. I left Long Island for California with a couple thousand dollars in my pocket and no specific plans. The girl I was with was only interested in doing coke all day. Her pals felt the same way. When alcohol was cheaper and my love for it was so strong, I thought coke was a waste of money. So I ditched her and rented a weekly motel with a friend from the island. We then got jobs and nightclubs and the partying never stopped. And the best part was that I was able to reinvent myself and shed the Long Island stigma that had followed me for so long. But I was deceiving myself. It had nothing to do with the island. It was the alcohol. And unlike Long Island, California sold hard liquor in grocery stores until 2 a.m. I was ecstatic. I met my future wife on a blind date after three months in California. My best friend and his wife arranged everything. He's a great guy, but you don't want to get serious with him. My friend's wife told my future wife. We're still in love after 27 years, 26 married. We have three wonderful children and I consider myself to be a very fortunate man. Returning to my arrival in California, my business partner and I decided to rob banks. Don't bother asking. We thought we were impenetrable. We robbed over 30 banks without using a weapon before being apprehended. One of our colleagues was a suspect in a murder. The idiot also tipped off the banks. So with him putting me in jail, it was a no-brainer when the DA offered me 85 years in prison or to tell what I knew about the idiot who ratted me out. He was the first to rat, so I took the stand and had my sentence reduced to three years in a country club. My wife had waited for me, and I can proudly say that I've not been in any trouble since. I adjusted job applications and managed over 200 employees for over 15 years before becoming an executive for a Japanese flat panel company. Following that, I wrote a screenplay, which was filmed and is currently in post-production. I recently optioned another screenplay for production next year. I'm also writing a book, and aside from my wife, my other best friend has been by my side the entire time, Alcohol. On October 10th, 2011, my entire life, attitude, and perspective in the world changed forever. My dear friend alcohol turned on me. My liver had failed and I was internally bleeding. I thought I was having diarrhea. I was bleeding digested blood from my body. My wife summoned an ambulance and I was taken to the hospital. They believed they had stabilized me for the first day. Then, I vomited pure blood and my blood pressure spiked to 40 over 40. They called the code blue because I was dying. My wife was present and my eyes were open but glazed over. I died for about 45 seconds on the table. That was the first of two after-death experiences I had. My spirit was sent to hell while my body was gone. It was far worse than I could have imagined. Aside from the extreme discomfort, I couldn't go a second without being bumped into and grunted at. There were dark clay heat boxes the size of an old 27-inch television that were being moved around. It was crowded and you couldn't see anyone's face. I couldn't tell whether they were white, black, American, or Asian. They had just arrived. At this point, I began pleading with God to forgive me. The grunting became more audible and I begged the Lord to please allow me to repent if I was to stay here. A light shone through at the time and I gravitated toward it. I thanked God and begged for forgiveness, declaring that Jesus was the light and that he was the only true and living God. Then I felt myself being drawn toward the light. I knew without a doubt that there was a Lord and I knew that I was out of hell at that moment. I wasn't in heaven, and I felt like I was back on earth, but I couldn't tell. One thing was certain. I had escaped hell. Oh, you are under the influence of drugs or dreaming this, you may be thinking. No, this all happened while I was coding as a result of what happened the second time I died. In less than 24 hours, they had used 23 units of blood to save my life. They then inserted a balloon into my stomach to compress the veins and stop the bleeding. What I described happened during this time. Six hours later, my wife was in ICU and I was listed as grave rather than critical. She thought I was trying to look at something behind me as she sat next to me. She shook and screamed at the top of her lungs when she realized I wasn't there. I was code blue once more. But this time, when I died, a glorious light shone around me, not brightly, but almost completely enveloping my soul. I was gradually progressing and had never felt more at ease in my life. As I was being lifted, I just kept thanking and praising God. This wasn't a dream. If I died... I would go to the afterlife, and the entire experience was one of peace, calm, love, and excitement that I would spend eternity in such bliss. It wasn't like the light got brighter as I got closer to the top of my slow ascent. It grew more soothing, and I'd never felt more accepted. Then, like a puff, I was back where I started. I realized I wasn't in heaven, but on earth and that my life had been restored to me. I couldn't care less what you think, cynics. I will not argue to try to counteract my experience with logic. Only you can understand. I'm certain that there is a life that is more beautiful and fulfilling than you could ever imagine. My goal in writing this is simply to tell you what happened to me and how faith and God's forgiveness saved my soul. Because as I mentioned at the outset, I was not the poster child for a trip to heaven, but God forgave me. He will pardon you. Simply ask Him, be sincere, and He will demonstrate to you what He demonstrated to me. All it takes is your belief. I can only hope that at least one person knows in their heart that my experience was genuine, so that you too can believe and know that you're blessed by the Lord.